0: Welcome to The Few Podcast. Never in the field of human content but so much owed by so many, to so few. So you want to become one of The Few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories
1: from The Few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for
2: all Australians, isn't it? It's a day it brings us all together. Five, four, three. One, liftoff, we have a liftoff. Now with your hosts, Boo and Sean.
0: Well, welcome back everyone to another episode of The Few Podcast with me, Boo, and the legendary superstar, Sean, Sean, Sean Sue. Hey, Sean,
1: how are you, mate? Great, mate. Great, great. Good to see uh back here again for another powerful conversation and we're really looking forward to the one today. No, it's going to be a,
0: a great journey today. We're going to talk a little bit about stress and Teflon. In, in the world I came up with, if you were Teflon, shit never stuck. You, you managed to get through your whole career, flying too low, flying too fast, and never getting
1: caught. I wasn't sure initially, Boo, when I, uh, I heard that it was like stress Teflon, I'm like, does that mean this person's very slippery? Or, uh, but after, after doing a bit of research into our guest, it's clearly not the case. I think we'll, we'll, we'll be able to unpack that as we go, I reckon. Pretty topical, don't you think? You've obviously got a decent-sized community of businesses. How's everyone stressed right now? Oh, a lot of them, it's very, very high, and it all seems to start in their head, and they're buying into the bullshit, and I'm really looking forward to running some of these concepts or ideas or ways to overcome it past our, our guest today. Awesome. Well, with no further
0: ado, let's talk to the man that actually knows what he's talking about when it comes to, to stress, the author of Stress Teflon, Luke Mathers. Luke, thanks so much for joining us today on The
1: Few. Good to see you, Boo. Nice to meet you, Sean. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Good stuff. So I'm going to get straight in is what is stress Teflon? Like a, That's a, a very interesting right.
2: title and, and what does it mean? It basically means that, that stress is a good thing, just don't let it stick to you. Yeah, it's like having fry pans and if the stuff doesn't stick to it, then you use it for what it's good for, you get rid of it. And that's kind of what we want to do with stress Teflon. We want to use the good bits of it but not let the bad bits sort of come in and you know, give us heart attacks and irritable bowel syndrome and all of those other health problems that you get when, you, when you're marinating in stress hormones. Use it, use it for what it's designed for and then get rid of it. All the same stuff you get if you
0: use Teflon-coated
2: sa- saucepans and fry pans. Exactly. So the idea is just to just to embrace stress that it's actually it's actually a really good thing. And the hassle is if we if we demonize it and turn it into the worst thing in the world, it actually makes it even worse. It makes its negative effects worse. And we don't get to utilize the positive effect of it. Because there's so many things that are really stressful in your life that without them, life's pretty miserable. You know, you think about falling in love. You think about Flying fighter jets, oh, hell, that's got to be stressful as all hell with people shooting at you and crashing and shit like that. That's got to be terrible. But yet those are the things that actually define our lives and the things that actually are the punctuation points that make our lives worth living. And the hassle is if we demonize stress, then we miss out on all of that really good stuff as well. And that's kind of what the message I kind of wanted to get across with Stress Teflon, that we've got to, we've got to utilize stress.
1: I think the, the concept is that stress has been given a bit of a bad rap. It's like stress is bad. You know, stress is going to kill you. I've heard sometimes people refer to it as tension versus stress. But as you say, I mean, what I'm hearing is that, you know, stress is if you put stress on your body while lifting a weight, you're going to increase the, the strength and size and, you know, and resilience yeah, of right. your muscles. Because if you lift a pencil up all day long, you're probably not going to do anything because there's not enough stress. But if I try to lift something way too heavy, then it's going to cause an injury.
2: Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of like the weight scenario is probably a pretty good one. It's that, you know, you've got to be able to have it heavy enough so, so you're, you're working hard, but you've also got to be able to put it down. And I think the problem is that we're not putting it down. You know, we might be carrying around a whole bunch of stuff, and some of that's probably heavier than it needs to be, and we're not putting it down. So it's a fairly good analogy as far as that goes. But I kind of broke it up into two parts. The first half is why you have stress. I went down a massive rabbit hole of evolutionary biology. I just love the way caveman did shit, so we do shit. We've got this hardware. We think we're really these, you know, modern creatures that have, have all this really smart stuff. And, you know, we can build iPhones and fighter planes and all of that sort of stuff. And we can land men on the moon and all of this, but we're still dealing with hardware that's thousands and thousands of years old. And I kind of wanted to write the book to get people to understand that this is how the hardware works and here's how to work it better.
0: They're our fundamental drivers, aren't they? Like this, the whole caveman, you would go out and eat when we're hungry. You get the adrenaline when, you, when you're putting yourself in a position which is overstretch. With stress, though, mate, it's, it's an interesting one. I remember in the Air Force you do a lot of research around over-arousal, under-arousal, and you develop a consciousness of, of where is good and bad, acute stress, chronic
2: stress. What is this concept of peak stress? Is that like being stressed all the time? No, it's kind of like having the right amount of stress so you're fired up and you're focused and, you, and you're on, but not having so much that you're getting overloaded, all right? So you've got to have some stress in your bucket, but if your bucket's overloaded, then you quit. Stress is there for two reasons. It's there to motivate us to get started, and it's there to make us quit when it all gets too much. So we kind of need both, and it's, it's how big we can make the gap between the two of those will tell us how much we can get done and what we can do. There's one
1: I suppose to think try and think about stress, like thinking that there's too much or there's not enough. But I guess as human beings, we're, you know, emotional creatures, we're feeling creatures, right? How would you describe the difference in feeling between a good stress versus one that's that's too much, that's actually starting? Oh, How would that appear? How would you feel it yeah. physiologically?
2: Uh, cracking question, Sean. I have a thing that I talk about in the book, and I wrote the book with with Mix Elko, who's a who's got a PhD in cognitive neuroscience. So there's a little bit of nerd in there, but it's I've lucified the nerd. But I, I reckon probably the the biggest model that we've got in there is a, is a fork in the stress road. That there's always a fork in the stress road, and it can either be a challenge or it can be a threat. And I think when it's a threat and it's a long term threat, then it turns toxic. But when it's a challenge, it actually doesn't. And the effects that it has on the body when we frame something as a challenge compared to when we frame it as a threat has a really really different effect on our blood vessels it has a really different effect on how we think and what what our reactions are one of them turns everything on one of them makes us run for run for hills and so i think being able to reframe whatever we're feeling as a challenge automatically turns it into a better type of stress than if we if we have it as a threat
1: you're saying that by us labeling it
2: is literally changing our physiology Yeah, it does. They did some great work out of Stanford with a lady called Kelly McGonigal. And she worked out that thinking that stress is bad for you was the seventh biggest killer in in the United States, which I thought was quite cool. But what they worked out is they, they did a whole bunch of research and they worked out who thought stress was really bad and who thought it was actually okay for you. And then they tested them and see over the next 10 years and see who died. It wasn't so much how much stress you had in your world, it was how the value or whatever you put on it was the thing that worked out, whether it was good or bad for you. So to be able to reframe it as, okay, this is something that's sent to test me. Merry Christmas. You know, use it as a challenge, I think makes a really big difference.
0: When you look at stress, there's a lot of context to it, right? Like some people can naturally take a great deal of stress, and some people get stressed if someone puts a black mark on their white sneakers. Yeah. What is it that that makes people more stress resilient than others? Is it a DNA thing? Can you teach yourself to be better with
1: dealing stress? How do you know that I'm not frustrated with my white sneakers getting black marks on But anyway, <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah it's, I, I think it's most of it's a learned response. There's a nature and nurture and all of that sort of stuff, but I think most of it, you'll stress in a way that you'll. Yeah, we have neural pathways and stuff, which I know you talk a lot about, Boo, is that having neural pathways and how they work, and we're going to go over the neural pathways that we've, yeah, that we've ingrained in the past. So if you've had a, a really negative, toxic reaction to certain things, and that's going to be your go-to. That's going to be your most used pathway. Then that's what's going to happen. But if you're someone that's stopped and had a pause and sort of say, okay, well, let's have a look at this from a couple of different options, and then I'm going to choose the one I want, then you're going to have a much more, resilient sort of reaction to any stressful situation. So I, I think most of it becomes habitual. I really love that idea that we talk about DNA and we talk about this is who I am and all of that sort of stuff. William James talked about humans are just bundles of habits. And I think if we start to frame our identity in terms of habits, it gives us a little bit of flexibility to change, that I'm not just this person, that I'm in the habit of reacting this way and that's causing these things. But I think we can actually reframe a lot of stuff particularly reactions to stress, is that's just what my habit is. And I think when we do that, we give ourselves that little bit of leeway, that little bit of room to be able to change. And I, th- I think that's a, a bit of a game changer for me anyway.
1: To add to that too, I mean, is it Carol Dweck's book, um, yeah, Mindset? It's about the fixed mindset or the growth mindset and the fact that it's proven now that, well, you can teach an old dog new tricks, right? That, that yeah. Neuroplasticity allows us to change those, that conditioning and If the conditioning has been there for a long time, it's like the Grand Canyon with, you know, stuff going through it. A lot of people say, oh, I found it really hard to create new habits. Well, it's not actually creating a new habit that's a problem. It's getting rid of the old one that seems to be the the problem. And if people are, as you say, conditioned to that thing is bad, so therefore I stress out in, in, as you say, that in the threatened way, therefore physiologically having our body respond with, you know, adrenaline and cortisol, all of the negative things that are going on versus going this is a challenge, this is an opportunity to grow or develop, I can very clearly see that differentiator. But if someone is stuck there, if someone is stuck in that bloody Grand Canyon neural pathway and is finding it hard to get out, what are some of the tips or some of the ways that you've found can work to people to first become aware of it and secondly move through it? Apart from a frontal lobotomy.
2: (laughs) Yeah, funnily enough you say that, that one of the things that happens when people get too full, when their bucket's right up to the top, is that one of the things you can do to regulate your emotions is stop giving a shit. You know, if you stop caring, apathy is one of the greatest tools you have in the whole armory to not let stress get on top of you. If you stop caring about it, it stops being stressful. It's a terrible strategy, but it's a strategy that lots and lots of people use. My boss is an asshole. is this, is that, or whatever, and it's really stressing me out. I'm not going to care about that anymore and I'm not. I'm just going to phone my job in and I'm, I'm going to live this sort of shadow of a life and I'm going to do that because I want to avoid the stress. That,
1: that's a, it's an unhealthy way then. It's an avoidance yeah, strategy. Massively.
2: Yeah, yeah, it massively is. Yeah, it's a really unhealthy way to do it. But we, we all come up with different habits and, and the thing you were talking about, about the neural pathways and stuff, there's a road that runs between Brisbane and the Gold Coast called the M1. And next to the M1, there's a road that runs parallel with it for about 20 or 30 Ks. And that used to be the M1. And that used to be our main road that we took between Brisbane and the Gold Coast. And what the council did is they then went next to it and built this massive big, you know, eight-lane behemoth of a thing. And that's kind of what we've got to do with habit change a little bit. Well, I've been walking on this path for this amount of time. I've got to do the hard work. And like walking through a sand dune, you're not going to walk down to the beach and, and walk through the long grass. You're going to take the path. But if you want to walk a different route, you've got to then wear that path in again. And so it takes a little bit of hard work at the start. But once you do it a few times, you then create a new path and that becomes the one you want to take.
0: I read this book about a guy that had locked-in syndrome where your brain doesn't connect to your motor services anymore. So you're alive in your head. Nothing works. You can't blink. You can't do anything. And the moral of that story was he built an entire neural pathway that never existed before to reconnect his brain to his motor skills so, and he started to come out of lockdown. And I remember reading that book and going, yeah, that's incredible. That is a person thinking their way back to mobility who's forged this whole new miraculous neural pathway. So mm. you know, I, I think it's absolutely humanly possible to do that, mind you. I got excited when you when you said apathy was a great way to deal with stress. It's like finally. And then-
2: <laughs> no, I'm not sure that's what I meant. Um,
0: it, made, it, made, it made it sound like it's a bad
2: thing. So yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I might not have articulated that as well as I could have, but it's a, it's a go-to for a lot of people to not give a shit. Will definitely regulate your stress hormones, but I'm not sure it's the best uh, the best option you've got, particularly from a leadership point of view. Because no, then you're going to cre- keep creating those situations and habits going on, and just burying it, burying it.
1: Eventually, yeah. that shit's going to come out. So it is. <laughs> Yeah. So look, obviously at the moment with lockdowns and things like that, there's plenty of people that are under an immense amount of stress. They're having to homeschool their kids. And I remember doing that whilst traveling Australia in a caravan and it was like homeschooling a nine-year-old version of myself. Let's say that I was surprised the caravan door didn't fall off uh, from being slammed so many times (laughs) because you can't really escape unless you go out and somewhere else, right? Because it's a very small space. So people are now stuck at home. They're having homeschool, sometimes multiple kids. They're with their other halves who they love, but don't want to spend every waking moment with. You know, They're not able to go run their businesses or go to work. There's all these additional stresses and strains and everyone's feeling it and they're bouncing off each other quite negatively. How would you suggest people can better deal with that to bring a bit more joy and calm and acceptance perhaps into the environment?
2: Great word, that last one you used then, was to, was to get some acceptance in there. One of the tools I use a lot in, my, in the workshops that I do in companies and stuff like that now is we have a thing called a reset. And a reset is basically like when your computer's overloaded, there's too many things going on. We go Control-Alt-Delete, all right? And it shuts everything down and you can restart the things that you want to. And I think we can kind of do that with our thinking as well. Ask ourselves some questions. What can I control? What should I change? What, what are my alternates? And what should I delete? All right, and I think if we ask those, and just do, I, just say those, just say those again. Control Alt Delete. What can I control? All right, and waste no time worrying about the things you can't. Alt. What can I change? What do I have change over? And delete is what. What should I get rid of? All right, and some of that might be attitudes to homeschooling. Some of that might be just to a few though And it's almost a bit like that Serenity Prayer, you know, that they use at Alcoholics Anonymous. That God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think there's something really valid about that, that, well, I can kick and scream and I can whinge and sort of yell at politicians and do whatever I like because I'm in lockdown and I'm having to homeschool my kids and I've got jobs that I should be going to that earn me money and I can't do them. We can yell and scream all we like about that, but there's something you can't control. So waste no time worrying about that.
0: That just seems to be where the world's going. I've got a philosophy which is when you've got nothing to worry about, you worry about everything. And it just seems that we can't find gratitude and and joy and simplicity. It's like there's this hyper speed hamster wheel that throws cheap white goods at you and you you've got to just keep upgrading and going and it's like what's the what's the point?
1: Hamster wheels and and white goods. Wow. He has some interesting analogies, but yeah. yeah.
2: That was impressive, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean, that, it's, that we, are getting, we are getting just so worried about things. There's some really good work by Susan David out of Harvard. She, she wrote a book called Emotional Agility. One of the things she talks about in that is toxic positivity, that whole idea of let's turn everything into something positive and stuff like that. And I, I think I've been guilty of that almost my whole life, of being sort of, yeah, no, let's just put a positive spin on that. And sometimes what it does, it makes us not stop and actually learn the lesson we need to learn from whatever something that has negative has happened. And I think one of the things about lockdowns and stuff is we've got to stop and actually learn the lesson. Are we giving our families and our relationships and, and ourselves enough time to actually stop and calm down and, Allow ourselves to be bored. There's some amazing things that happen on the other side of boredom. We're so like, keep boredom away. I can't have that. That's the worst thing in the whole entire world. I don't think boredom's ever killed anyone. No. But at the most creative things you have, I, I, I have this really weird, strange thing that I do. Where I, I love putting the washing on the line because you have some of the best ideas. You ever got writer's block? can't put the washing on the line and you'll come up with whatever it is you have to do so but that idea of doing something that's utilizing your brain but not taking up any brain energy actually allows you to to actually come up with some really good ideas what's it called resting
0: brain theory or empty brain like when you think you're not thinking how active your brain actually is in
2: those moments a bit of metacognition yeah there's a thing called the default mode network which is a yeah you know, a little strip that runs down the, a couple of things in between the middle of your brain from your prefrontal cortex to your posterior cingulate. there's some things in there that when it's what lights up when you're thinking about you so when you daydream and we all when we daydream we did daydream about our sort of part in the world and everything revolves around us but that part of it is often where you know, a lot of your imagination and stuff comes from as well, and I think it's not such a bad thing. I, I reckon we've just got very intolerant to boredom, and I actually think it's not such a bad thing. I think we need to allow ourselves to be. I have a thing where we talk about sort of two ends of the spectrum. One is you're in the red and you're fired up and everything's going at a thousand miles an hour, and the other end you're sort of chilled out and relaxed and getting a bit bored. And we kind of, we you know, Schopenhauer talked about a people swing on a pendulum between pain and boredom so we swing on a pendulum between running around with our heads chopped off and bored out of our nut and i think we've got to enjoy that swing and being able to go to both ends whereas i think a lot of modern society we've just gone to the fire up end and we've got stuck there we haven't gone the other way
1: i believe it's the it's the level of information that's being thrown at us all the time always having these things at hand dinging at us and it says jump, so you jump, you know, and something else dings, your email comes, it pops up on your screen, someone's ringing you, you've got 17 voicemails and 50 emails, and well, it's almost like the structure that we've created is driving that innate, consistent, ongoing level of this underlying stress. We don't ever step back from it. Now, something you said before, you said about, you know, the people that make everything positive, let's put a positive spin on it. To me, that's very similar to the whole avoidance strategy before of stop caring it's not addressing the issues not addressing what needs to go on one of the things that the covid stuff first started last year is i was running an event and i'd run it a week later if i'd cancel it a week earlier it wouldn't have been relevant throughout the event i started to change the content based on what i was hearing the fears the concerns of of the members in my inner circle group and the one thing that came up with is that people need to be realistic but optimistic so not turn everything into a positive but be optimistic about it but also don't be like yeah it's all gonna be fine or everything's going to, the world's going to end, right? Because again, those spectrum, either end of the spectrum is not where it actually is real. So it's like being real. Yeah, this sucks a bit. But if we're optimistic, it's not going to go forever. And what am I grateful for? And those sorts of things. And a big part of that, and I feel, and I want to get your opinion on how you think this is impacting people too, is particularly when people are in lockdowns or or isolated from other people or in challenging situations in their life, how important do you believe what people are consuming on all levels? Physically, yeah. you know, sleep, food, mentally, fitness, like the, the consumption, if you want to call it that, how important do you think that is in managing and sustaining a healthy level of stress?
2: Oh, man, that's a massive question. I have this, this almost like an infinite model that if you, if you imagine an infinity thing and, and on that you have food, you have your mood, you have your move or how much you exercise, and then you snooze, how much you sleep. And then you kind of throw stress in at the middle of the loop. You think about those five. So food, mood, move, and snooze, and then stress in there as well. And all of those things, every single one of them affects the four others in some way.
0: No one ever talked about sex on the few. You know, and a good shag's just as important as anything. I've just realized that.
2: Oh, massive. It's a great way to empty your stress bucket.
0: Well, that's where you were <laughs> going with that for a minute. I was like, about time someone brought it in the bedroom. I mean,
2: no one's got on the job yet. <laughs> but I just, you know, that that things of you consume, you know, what you eat and when you eat, it's going to affect the way you sleep. And that's going to you know how your sleep's going to affect the way you exercise, and then that's going to affect your mood, and then it's going to affect how well you handle stress. All of those things come into it. So if we put that back through that control alt-delete loop and what parts of them can I control, what parts of them can't, and actually do the things that you're in the control that you can help. Things like not going to bed at half past 12 because you just watched 48 episodes of something on Netflix and then wondering why you're waking up in the morning and you're cranky and eating bad food and not exercising because you're tired and then wondering why you're miserable and you're then snapping at your wife and your stress levels are going up because you're, you're now blueing with her because you haven't been your best self.
1: But it's a spiral, isn't it, Luke? If you start doing the negative stuff, it spirals negative, spirals down, whereas if you start to That's do right. the positive one, you kind of spiral back up. But again, we we're talking on consumption, How important do you feel, because something I'm hearing all the time is when I hear from people go, oh, I'm so worried about this, and we had this many cases today, and this thing, and that thing, is people are regurgitating what's coming in their eyes and their ears. And how important do you think it is of people being very conscious and very aware of managing what they consume? Because I haven't watched the news, read a newspaper, or listened to the news for over 25 years. I'm not dead. I know things are going on, but I don't use it as my way of learning about the world. I actually go and get information. I don't want to be fed information. So it allows me to not get all stressed about this stuff and be realistic but optimistic. So how important do you think it is when people are, particularly when they're confined and they're ending up on social media for longer because they're stuck at home, they're bored? How can people manage that sort of consumption?
2: I think you've got to work out what empties your stress bucket and what fills it up. And I think once you understand that, there is no way you would watch morning news shows you know, the idea of I'm going to wake up, I'm going to walk downstairs and I'm going to have a cup of coffee and and watch all of these bad things and I know they had 633 cases in New South Wales this morning and then start my day with an hour of that and then wonder why I'm not in a very good frame of mind when I hop on the Zoom call and my kids are wanting me to to do homeschooling. It's sort of we're setting ourselves up for failure a little bit with that. So you you gain throw that through the control-alt-delete loop and I can definitely control that. If I want to catch up with what's going on in the world, well, why don't we do it at three in the afternoon? Why don't we do it at one of those times where we're going to have a break? I have a thing I call noise-cancelling habits. And a noise-cancelling habit is something you can do once and it stops a whole bunch of other things that you have to react to. One noise-cancelling habit I have is as I come into my office, I come in my garage is just there, I have to go through my office to get to the house. And I plug my phone in the office and when I go into the house, I don't have my phone with me. So when I walk in there, I want to be a father, I want to be a husband, or I just want to chill out and watch the footy or something. But I don't want to be looking at Instagram. I don't want to be looking at LinkedIn. I don't want to be doing any of those things. And the moment I put my phone in the other room, I don't have that cue to make me do it. And so I don't see it. It's out of sight. It's out of mind. It's not something I have to worry about not looking at my phone because it's not in the same room.
1: You would have used willpower initially to create the habit the habit now has become normal, so therefore you don't need the willpower to do it anywhere near really, that level.
2: And it's literally the, the beauty of noise-cancelling habits, though, is they're three seconds of willpower. It's literally three seconds of walking in, plugging your phone in and going the other way, so you're not having to sit there and say, oh, will I look at my phone Won't I?" It's like, no, it just took three seconds. And if you, if you look at the word work of BJ Fogg and people like that who talk about habits, he talks about when you do something, have a little celebration. At the moment that you do it just to reinforce that this is a good thing let's do that again and just plug the phone in and say cool done with phone for a little while you beauty you know go into the house and those little things that it seems tiny the other really big one is get rid of the social media apps off your phone if you want to if you want to look at them go in through safari and log in and just put a little bit of friction between the thing that you're sort of doing habitually and that you want to cut down on. And if you put a little bit of friction between the thing that you don't want to do and make that harder and make the thing that you do want to do easier, that kind of frees it up a little bit as well.
1: I love that. And I, I remember driving somewhere with someone in a car and we were having a chat and I was looking across, having a talk, whatever, and I could see, I was watching, they picked their phone up, unlocked it, pressed on the Facebook app and started scrolling without taking their eyes off me. They didn't even know they did it. I looked down and went, oh. did you notice that? And they're like, That's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Yeah. The thing is that remember that these things are designed to make you addicted to, just going to scroll one more time, just going to scroll one more time, just going to scroll one more time. They're actually designed. So if we're trying to overcome it, as you said, just purely like from the willpower perspective, if you don't put a, anything in between it to make it that little bit harder so you're less likely to do it, then you're going to keep doing it. It's going to keep controlling you. Yeah. One of the other things I I've, I've do too is i don't have any notifications on my phone or on my computer if i need information i go to it the only notification again my phone's on silent all the time unless my kids are somewhere i need to have it on in case i need to pick them up or emergency or something but other than that it's on silent the entire time
2: yeah turning your notification off is massive yeah you think of a noise cancelling habit that just stops, literally stops noise but it also just stops those constant distractions and it turns your phone into you're using it rather than it's using you, which is, which is a massive thing. It's one of those things I think we're catastrophizing it a little bit in terms of how addictive phones are, and they are, and they're designed to have little dopamine hits and all of that sort of stuff. I get all of that. But if you look at some of the, some of the things are the ways you define addiction, and there's a couple of really good ones, one is Andrew Huberman talks about addiction as being a gradual narrowing of the things that bring you joy. I really like that. If you're a heroin addict, the only thing you're going to get joy from is finding more heroin. So, you know, that's a proper addiction. But if you're someone that looks at your phone perhaps a little bit more than you perhaps should, but yet you're still finding a lot of joy other places, I don't think it's such an addiction. The other one that um, Judson Brewer, who's from Brown University, he wrote a book called The Craving Mind, which talked a lot about this. And one of the things that he used in that was continuing to do something despite adverse consequences. And I really like that as far as phones go. Are the phones then turning into something that's stopping me having connections and stopping me talking to the person in the car next to me and just inanely scrolling on Facebook without even noticing I've done it like your friend did? They're, They're my two that I really like. Is it a gradual narrowing of what I do? And am I doing it despite the adverse consequences? And if you're not getting adverse consequences, then it might not be an addiction.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's a nuance of not a full-blown like drug addiction, but it's something where people are subconsciously being pulled back. It's a distraction. It's something that is like a craving even, but it's something that, and I've seen it so much, Like, the, and when you look at how long people actually spend on it, and they've done studies about, I think it's more than 10 minutes on something like Facebook. Facebook. You start to lower your own self-worth by looking at all these other people's, Good sides yeah. and not their bat, not their back sides, and so that sort of stuff is, I think, and same thing we talk with notifications. With oh, this person's doing this, and they're at a fancy restaurant, they're doing shit that I don't get to do. I see these things as all little tiny elements that are adding weight and adding potential stress. And they talk about you know the straw, oh, yeah, straw yeah, yeah, that yeah. broke the camel's back, you know. So it could be that little extra thing that makes you lose your crap over something you know and
2: well, we're, well a comparative- we're a comparative species we compare ourselves to other people all the time that person's taller than me that person's prettier than me that person's got a bigger car we're a species of people that are constantly comparing ourselves and so is the whole natural world everything compares itself to other, whether you want to think about it or not it's it's happening they did a really cool study in university of tel aviv in israel and what they did is they got students to get to the point where they'd had enough, where they were like overloaded and now I've got to have a break. And they got half of them to just go and have a break and go for a walk or watch a comedy video or do something like that. And then they got another half of the students, they let them scroll on Facebook for half an hour. And then they got them back and saw what their grades were like and how long they could go for until they wanted another break. And they wanted another break half as long as they'd been scrolling on Facebook and their grades went down quite a bit all right so what what we're using things like facebook is a way to have a break but it's a really ineffective way to have a break we're not actually emptying anything out of the buckets because of all of that comparison stuff that you're talking about and so if we want to have a proper break we've got to be not in a place of compare and despair and we've got to not be in a place of being constant distracted we've actually got us go somewhere where we can actually empty a bit of stuff out of our stress bucket go for a walk in nature do some breathing exercises there's a really cool one say you're really really stressed and you're having an anxiety attack and all of that sort of stuff if you had a button on the back of your hand that you could press and calm everything down would you press it absolutely you would there's one muscle in your body you've got 610 muscles in your body and there's one muscle that links straight to your hypothalamus that controls all of that stress response. So it controls your heart rate, it controls your breathing, it controls your blood pressure, all of that sort of stuff. And that's your diaphragm. So by just stopping and breathing into your stomach and making your stomach go in and out, it actually is moving your diaphragm, breathing in through your nose, particularly even alternating nostrils, because that basically just makes them the hole smaller so the diaphragm's got to work harder. And if the diaphragm works hard, 80% of the information going on your vagus nerve goes up to, the, up to your hypothalamus and actually tells it to calm the farm. So just stopping and breathing for a little while and slowing down a little bit and letting your body tell your brain that I'm safe, I'm not being attacked by tigers, I'm all right, I'm not sitting here comparing myself on Facebook, will do a way better job of, of emptying some of that stress out of your bucket so that you can keep going again.
1: To tie back to what we were talking about earlier about boredom and it 's no surprise that if someone scrolls on Facebook for half an hour versus going for a walk out outside and you know with a bit of trees or nature or around the block or whatever it 's no surprise that there 's a noticeable difference in people 's stamina and ability to bounce back but again it 's this this epidemic of people not being okay to just sit with their own thoughts and yeah. just stop because to, to me, one of the things I say to all of my inner circle members is. You need to stop doing so much. You need to start being more. And the people are like, I don't understand what you mean. It's like, as a leader, you need to create space. Just space. Space to not necessarily do anything. You go, oh, but then I feel really guilty and I'm unproductive. I'm like, that's the whole point. Is being productive actually getting you where you want to go? Is it giving you the solutions you want? Is it giving a chance for your subconscious to throw up those light bulb moments and go, bing, when do they come? In the shower, you know, when you're hanging the washing washing out, when I'm going for a run, right? They come when you stop, when you're not having to think or do something. And for, for me, that's when the stress will dissipate is when you create small spaces throughout your day to stop, to slow down, to not always be on. I've suffered for, from overwhelm for a lot of times, anxiety, had clinical depression for 17 years until my early 30s and until I overcame that. But a big part of that was overwhelm. What I realized, the, the overwhelm, which is which is stress, negative stress, as far as I see it, it came from me. I created it. I created the expectations of this person, I've got to get it back to this person. I've got to create it was all coming from me. It actually wasn't coming from anybody else. And once I realized that and realized that I had control. I could finally change something
2: that must have been a massive penny drop moment for you when you realized that was going on and because like, and- this is
1: me i'm doing it it's not other people now it took a while to get rid of the you know switch the single lane highway to the new eight lane highway of yeah. course but it it's something that allowed me to really reduce overwhelm very quickly and anytime i feel it i go right clearly i'm not managing this or labeling this correctly or i'm effectively stacking things vertically on top of each other i've got to do I this like and this food. and this and this so what i do is i visually go right i'm going to take all these things i need to do i'm going to line them up like dominoes because you can just see one domino then when that one gets knocked down you see the next one when that gets knocked down you see the next one so even visually i'd use a visualization to go okay i'm going to place these things as if they're going forward in time in front of me so that yeah, right. they're not all due right now because I can't do them all now, so stressing about having to do them all now is not going to help me do them. Yeah. You get into that loop and it seems a bit ridiculous.
2: But that's where the control alter leads are really nice tool to be able to say, well, what can I control here? And take a deep breath while you're doing it and go, okay, I can control X, Y, and Z. I can't do A, B, and C. That's all right. What can I change and what do I need to get rid of? And the fact that you worked out yourself that you were getting overloaded and it was your you are feeding, Yeah, there's a new part of your brain and an old part of your brain, and you're feeding a lot of stress from that new part into the old one by the stories you're telling yourself. Brenna Brown has a great thing that she talks about is, is she says the old brain gets a, gets a shitty first crack at how to solve any problems, all right? And I really like that, that we don't have to accept the first thing our brain throws at us. We can acknowledge it and go, okay, cool, well, that's one option. What other options have I got? I think the moment you do that, the moment you get curious, I think is a game changer. And you've, you've kind of touched on that a little bit before, that when you stop and ask yourself some of those questions, then the parts of your brain that control a lot of that stress response actually go a little bit quieter. So getting a getting a little bit curious, finding out what it is that you do, have some some control over and, and letting go of the things that you can't and working out when you're the problem, which is what you did. And it, it sounds like that was a massive game changer for you.
1: Oh, absolutely huge huge and again with what i do obviously in mentoring other people to learn that earlier on it's been one of those things that's that's it's been able to show other people hey this was me too i was doing this too i'm not special i've just learnt different ways of processing things and learnt not to label things good and bad they just are and if you as you said i didn't really associate the label with the stress level but as soon as you said that earlier it was just like that was like a light bulb. It's like, oh, yeah, I can see that. And so when I label it bad, it's like threat. When I label it good, it's like, okay, it's a challenge. I know this it sucks, but you know what? It's a challenge. Let's let's do it. The question I wanted to ask, actually, a little bit of a off on a bit of a tangent, but um, you seem like a pretty motivated, pretty upbeat, optimistic person, and and probably got a bit of Teflon on there for all the stress to slide off. What what is it that motivates you? What mm-hmm. does it keeps you going?
2: I love sharing the stress Teflon message. I I really love it. There are so many people that haven't had those penny drop moments and if we can help facilitate a few of those, and you sound like you've done that with quite a few of the people in, in your group, if I can help people do that, oh, man, it's just, I've had a couple of times in my life where I've had like top of the mountain syndrome. Like I retired at 31 for the first time and went, yeah, okay, I'm, I've done really well, I've worked my ass off, I've made some money and, yeah, I'm good and was miserable within about a year. All right. And so there's a lot of times where you can, you can chase those things, but you don't get sick of actually helping people. You don't get sick of making a difference in people's lives. You know, I love going to schools. I go to schools quite a bit now and actually talk to, talk to kids in schools. And you get like year 11 and 12 kids. And, you know, we could have a, a half an hour conversation on way to change sleep habits. And these kids are absolutely enthralled because there's lots and lots of things that they, they don't realize that everyone else is having these same problems and they don't realize that everyone else's brains ruminate and they roll things around in their head they just think it's them and so to be able to normalize some of that and tell stories like yours you know you must have been sort of 13 or 14 when your depression started
1: about 17 yes
2: and so to be able to realize that other people are going through that and this is the thing that happens and these are the things that you've got to help you it's massive and so to be able to get up and do that sort of stuff, I love it. I love coaching. Coaching is like the most fun you can have when you, you, you get people that are just riddled with anxiety and they're just barely wanting to go outside of the house and you give them two or three tools and all of a sudden they're whistling and loving life. Yeah. That's a warm, fuzzy feeling. That's like pissing in a wetsuit. It's like they're just the nicest feeling ever. It's great. So, yeah, I, I love I loved doing that sort of stuff. So It seems to be a common theme of the people we get on the, on the few is
1: the concept of serving other people and getting immense satisfaction because again you know I, I can only imagine you know if you're on your deathbed at 90 or something like that and what do you wish you did more of i don't think anyone's going to say scrolled facebook or instagram exactly you know it's, it's going to be well i really wish i made a bigger impact or spent more time with with people that are important to me and things like that
2: i did that I was one of the original directors of Specsavers in Australia. So when Specsavers came to Australia, I sort of went around the country and helped sign people up and had the biggest store in the country and set lots of records and did lots of really, really cool stuff as part of it.
0: You must have listened to that, to that Afterburner program, mate, clearly to have that sort of
2: impact. Yeah, I actually did the Afterburner program with Boo years and years ago. It was really cool. I, I took a lot away from that. I loved it. I still do red teaming now. I love it. And so I did all of that and it was all, all really successful and that, that was all really fun. And I look back at the end of it and the main thing that i took joy on is that 12 people who had started their their careers with me went on to own their own shops all right so they were people that worked in my store and sort of learnt the ropes that way and then they went off and they actually did really successful did various degrees of success but all the other things all the records all the money all of that sort of stuff it's all good and it's you know nice to have those and that's the way you keep score but the only ones that you would actually lie on your deathbed and feel really proud is the actual lives that you changed because you gave them the belief in themselves and you gave them that mentoring that actually got them to the next level. And I think when you look at things that you're going to sit on your deathbed and think, yeah, it was pretty good being me, I think those sort of things where you're making an impact on people's lives. And it sounds like you're doing that with some of the people that, that you're talking to now. And I've, I've been to your courses as well, Boo, and I use words like red team every single week because I learned stuff from you guys. So the fact that we, we now, as sort of thought leaders, we get to go out there and make a difference, man, that's such a privilege and it's such a, a great thing.
0: And you just, you just always learn. And you can learn the same lesson again. Like you, your brain can't be old so much. It's you know, what I love about this, uh, Sean and Luke, having these conversations is like, oh, that's right, oh, that's right. No one's perfect and no one is the font of all knowledge and wisdom. So that curiosity to, to always seek and then find, you know, different angles and different perspectives.
2: Yeah, it's a great word, isn't it, Curious? My new book that I'm writing at the moment is called Curious Habits. And I think when we get curious about our habits, we can actually change our identities and we can change a lot of things and get rid of a lot of the stuff that we do that's just not us anymore. And uh, I actually think you're right, but I reckon the more we can get curious, the more we can decrease a lot of that toxic stress and, and get people thriving in a way that's really going to help. Don't get furious, get curious. There you go. Boom. Nice. Boom.
1: There's, a, there's an Instagram post, a uh, quote or something. But uh, one of the phrases that I've used is, you know, walk into situations like a five-year-old. And uh, they always ask why. Why? Why? And that's that same why thing. It's curiosity.
2: That. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where we lose that. I'm, I'm trying to hope I'm not losing it.
1: Apathy. Your friend
2: is, I think, why we lose it. Just like Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right.
1: Or a fear of feeling that you're stupid. And the thing is that I think particularly, you know, going through school and stuff that I think people think if they are the ones asking the questions, other people think they're dumb. The thing is they're actually the smartest ones, the ones that ask the questions yeah, all the great. time, are yeah, the ones great. that are learning a hell of a lot more than those that I see that even in, you know, in, in my group, there'll be probably 15 or 20 out of the 100 or more people in the room that'll ask all the questions. Yeah. You know, the, the other 80% don't. And it's like, who's drawing the most value?
2: But that's one of the things about in a leadership sort of situation, whether it's a coaching situation or the sort of workshops that you run, Boo, it's up to the person out the front to get people curious so that they want to answer those questions and create an environment that they're safe to do it as well. You know, Both of those two things, I think, go in hand in hand.
1: And a gun to their head with some people. <laughs>
2: yeah, sometimes.
1: Because they just will not hold a mic and stand up. You know, like they just won't do it. Although if someone says, I, I hate public speaking, or I hate doing this, I'm like, cool, come up on stage then do it from here. And they realise it didn't kill them. So, um, you know, it's a bit, of a bit of a fun thing that we do if anyone well, ever I'll sends that.
2: <laughs> what would you tell the younger version of yourself, mate? Oh, cracking question. I love that. Get off the train earlier. I, th- I think we spend a lot of time as blokes, particularly through our, you know, 20s and 30s and 40s, Looking at the top of the mountain, so I've got to get there. I've got to get there. I've got to get there. And we don't stop and look around enough. I stayed on a train that was a really good train. It looked after me really well, but I probably stayed on it for a bit too long. I stayed on it when I wasn't quite going in the direction that the train was going on, and I I needed to stop and look out a few of the windows and work out where else I might want to go. So you also regret it when you get off too early as well. So picking the right time is a little bit hard. But I love the concept of action gives you answers. So try new things if they work, great. They don't work, great. Yeah, you know, you'll get the answers from it. No, I think that would probably be my my advice to to my younger self would be to to get a bit more curious and try a few more things and don't be afraid to fail and don't stay on the same train just because it's been good to you for a while. Get out and have a crack.
1: Absolutely
0: love it. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development, and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few.
1: Mate, uh, Luke, really, really appreciate you taking the time today. Um, we'll put some links in for people to be able to find you, to find the book, Stress Teflon. Looking forward to hearing when you launch the, the new one as well. But uh, I want to say a massive thank you for today. I'm sure a lot of these strategies and And tips will really help just in general, but also when we're in more extreme situations, uh, like some of the lockdown things we're going through at the moment. So really, really awesome, mate. Thank you. Thanks, man. That was awesome.
2: Cheers, fellas. It's been emotional. This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of the few. We'll see you next week.